And so uh, Acts chapter 2 this morning, or the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. I'm going to read to you the first 21 verses of this this well-known passage of Scripture. Make my comments based on this this morning. It's the... It's the advent of Christ in our hearts, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, And one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and Prodlites, Proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, Well, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. O Father, let us reap this promise this morning. Let those who have not called upon you call upon you even today in our hearing, O Lord. And let the Spirit of God infill them and renew them and endue them with power from on high. We pray in Jesus' name, O Lord. Amen. All right, and so we have this well-known passage, could hardly do it justice with the few words that I'll speak on it this morning, but there are a couple of points here that I really would like to elucidate. You like that word, elucidate? That means bring light to. And um, this is the day the apostles 
tarried in Jerusalem according to the promise of Christ. And they sat there together, 120 of them, in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. We don't know where. Um, But they sat there and they waited and they prayed. And finally the Spirit of God rushed in with a, with a, a new work upon the gathered saints. Those who already believed in Christ were given this infilling of the Holy Spirit. It came in once for all at that time. And we are each immersed, or you might say baptized, into that body when we receive that Spirit upon the profession of our faith. And our souls are converted from these mortal dying souls to our eternal and heavenly beings that live within us. And these bodies die, but our born-again spirits do not die with them, but live on and go to Christ. And this is a great um, illustration of the beginning of that happening in the church of God. And so we read, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. All right? Uh, Pentecost was one of the great feast days of the Jews. And so they had to come with their families to Jerusalem. And hence you read all these people from different continents, from different countries, with different languages. And so the Lord, in order to have these newly filled apostles preach the gospel, had to unravel the languages that were raveled so many centuries ago in, on the plains of Shinar in a place called Babel. And so he confused the language there and unconfused it here. And so we've been, in these past few weeks, discovering the New Testament examples of and the nature of genuine conversion. What does it mean to be converted to Christ? How does it come about? And this passage has been variously treated over the centuries since it took place as a good place to begin that study. Obviously something miraculous happened that day and God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. Now, I'm not necessarily taking the position that the 120 disciples who were tarrying that day in the upper room in Jerusalem were not yet confirmed believers in Christ. I believe they were. These were certainly a chosen people. They were certainly an obedient people. The express command of Christ was tarry ye a while in Jerusalem and wait for the pouring out of the Spirit. And so they tarried. People today still have tarrying meetings. And they go and they tarry a while until the clock runs out and then they leave. Filled or unfilled. Sometimes unfilled pretending to be filled. Sometimes they're filled. But this time we have it on the word of Christ himself through the Holy Spirit, that these were filled by the Spirit of God in Mass. And the church in this new dispensation was born at that time. These were certainly a chosen people. They were an obedient people. They were hungry and searching for Christ. And if I may add, they were a people guided by the Holy Spirit. And what was about to come upon them was a new thing. The Holy Spirit is immersing them. Immerse is another word for baptize. You know, the word baptizo in the Greek means to immerse. 
We would never have sprinkled or poured if we had simply, when we translated the Bible, translated the word baptizo. And there wouldn't be any argument. And then everyone would be a Baptist. And you would have no excuse not to be. Because it means immerse. And so, the Holy Spirit came baptizing the church, immersing them in Himself, and filling them individually with powers beyond their own capabilities. These people didn't know all these languages. They were mostly like us, probably monolingual. They spoke a, 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 a brand of Arab, Arabic called Aramaic. And they read Hebrew. And if you want to know, that in the time of Christ, the ancient Hebrew of the Old Testament was already a dead language. Even the Jews had to learn that dialect to read their own Bibles. But no, they do not conjure up the Spirit. They don't ask Him to act on their behalf. If anything, He conjures them up to act in His interest. Now, there are many, even whole denominations, who teach that every new convert needs to seek a replay of the event, complete with the sign of tongues being spoken. I don't take that position and I'm not saying that at all from this, um, in this message. Like creation, friends. It only happened once, right? Like the flood of Noah. Only once, and God promised, never again will all the earth be subject to a flood. Like the felling of Jericho by the obedient soldiers of Joshua. Like Jonah being swallowed by a whale. This too is a one-time event. Anyone been swallowed by a whale recently? Take a poll. It's a one-time event, but it has eternal consequences and an ongoing pattern here for the church. And so we should learn to look at the Scripture from two distinctly different perspectives. One, the perspective that, friends, the Bible is a history book. It's said to be one-third history, right? Scripture is descriptive of actual events. That's what a history book does. It describes things that happened, right? And two, it's a book of prophecy and a book of theology, and so it also contains passages that are prescriptive. And so when we read, for instance, the creation story, we're not trying to recreate the world. God's already done that. So it's a it's a description of what's been done. When we read the stories of, of the flood of Noah, right? We're not looking for a replay, I hope not, of that. When we look at the crucifixion of Christ that was once for all, we don't replay that. We don't redo that. Some things are one-time events, and the Bible is descriptive of those events. The other aspect of the Bible is is that it is prescriptive and it prescribes to us certain things that we must do to honor God. And so this passage also contains passages that are prescriptive. And that is, there are patterns that the new convert ought to follow and there are specific one-time events that the new convert needs to be aware of. And so we go back and we, and we read the Bible and we read the Old Testament. And remember, at the time this happened, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old. Abraham did not try to copy Noah by building an ark. 
Moses didn't copy Abraham by building altars throughout Canaan. Jesus didn't copy Moses by climbing up Sinai and bringing down the tablets of the law. Rather, each man, each prophet, built upon what had already been accomplished by his predecessors. And so, the great A.W. Tozer, hadn't read him in a long time, but I was reminded recently of his book, The Counselor, where he talks about this very thing. And he says, I do not believe in a repetition of Pentecost, but I do believe in the perpetuation of Pentecost, and there's a vast difference between the two. All right? God came upon the saints gathered as a one-time event here. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and baptized them, you see. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit here. That means immersed in the Holy Spirit. He did the immersing. In other words, some things came upon the church and stayed there, and some things came and went. Now, consider the things that went. There was this sound of the rushing mighty wind. Well, that came and went. We don't read of that happening again, right? It didn't stay. I've not heard of anyone ever claiming to hear it in the churches today. Actually, maybe I have heard of people claiming it to be in the churches today. I'm not sure. Um, I take that at face value. Even in the most enthusiastic and charismatic meetings, we don't generally hear of people uh, claiming that a rushing mighty wind came into the churches. And then there was that fire, the fire that sat as cloven tongues upon their heads. That came and went. We don't see that anymore. When someone gets born again, there's no visible flame upon their head. Am I right about that? We don't read of the disciples walking around for the rest of their lives with that fire burning visibly over their heads. It would make things easier if we had that. Now, the text speaks of speaking with other tongues. That's literally other languages. This is a direct reference to certain known languages that were spoken by Jews of various ethnic backgrounds. Friends, the people that came here that day were Jews. They had to travel back for this great feast of Pentecost. All the Jews from all over the continents came to Jerusalem uh, during that time, just like when they came for the Passover during the time of the crucifixion of Christ. They came also for the Pentecost, which was, a, which was um, a harvest festival in the Old Testament. And of course now we see that the Old Testament harvest festival was really an emblem, right? Or a figure of what was really a harvest of souls that would come in to Jerusalem at the time of the Pentecost and these great events would be happening. So it's a direct reference to certain known languages that were spoken by the Jews in various, with various ethnic backgrounds. Peter tells us that it's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that stipulates that in latter days every believer, young and old, will prophesy. And that means speak the things of God. Or proclaim the gospel of God. So the Jews were a scattered people, scattered throughout the world. And they came to the Pentecost festival from every nation and continent. And it was God's purpose for this newly gathered church of a mere 120 people to deliver the gospel of Christ to every nation. God is not afraid of small beginnings. Do you ever notice that as you go through 
of the Scriptures. And so he came to the Jews first and then later to the Gentile world. And so that was accomplished in this text as well. Now there are a number of other things that came upon the saints that day that were to be perpetuated. If the wind and the fire were to be perpetuated, and if we've never seen these things happen again, then the church that was livened on that day was also deadened on the same day. And she would have disappeared when those first disciples disappeared. But that didn't happen. The church lived on. And she lives on because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on that day, immersing them or baptizing them with this spiritual baptism, you see. And as each new convert came into the church, he or she was also immersed in the spirit that only lived in and among the spiritually baptized people of God. The baptism of the Spirit was not outside the church. It was only inside the church. And that day, 3,000, if we keep reading, 3,000 souls were added. I don't think they were going to meet in one place again. The next day, 5,000 were added. And by the way, these counts generally in that era, they only count the men. The women and children could have amounted to thousands more than that. You see, and they came in in this great revival, this great wave of converts who were hearing the gospel of Christ and being converted. And there was this visible sign of their conversion. They were able to speak in languages that they had not learned. That's what tongues are, by the way. They're languages. And so we read from the last verse of the chapter, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so this was an event that went on for some days during this season of Pentecost in Jerusalem in the first century, a few decades after Christ had ascended up into, um, or after he came down, and um, I'm sorry, it was a few days after he came down and then ascended again. They would never again gather in one place. They would not hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind throughout the rest of history. They'd not have tongues of fire upon their heads. They would not speak to the masses in their own languages at a major feast day where every Jew was required to attend, so far as we know. But the prophecy was fulfilled. And the curse of Babel from Old Testament times, friends, when God confused the languages, was lifted. And a new era came upon them. An era of understanding and a new access into the Jewish gospel was ushered in. But like the fire and the wind, so too would the miracle of tongues cease. Now I know that some say that the tongues were not human languages. Rather they teach that the language spoken of there was an esoteric angelic language. Have you heard this? It's just sort of a babbling. We're not intended to understand it. We just know that somehow God is in it. Now, I'll not make this a sermon about tongues. That's not my point today. But I will point out that every angel in the Bible, and I encourage you to go back and check me on this, every angel in the Bible that visited any of the prophets from Abraham to Lot in Sodom to Gideon, to Samson's mother, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to her husband Joseph, to Zacharias, the the father of John, to his wife Elizabeth. Every time an angel came, they spoke in a known language. 
Am I right about that? I suggest to you that if there is such a heavenly language, and if it is a language that neither the speaker nor the hearer can or should even try to understand, as it is the contention of the charismatic churches, then this was not what was happening that day at Pentecost. Because each person confessed to hear the word in his own language, a known language in the earth. So for our purposes today, we're discovering what a new convert should seek and what he should expect. Now, if we go back a few verses in the narrative, we find that the disciples are gathered there in obedience to the express command of Christ the risen Lord. And while he was yet in their presence, and before he made his last ascension into heaven to reside at the right hand of God the Father, simple obedience is the first act of the genuine convert. Simple obedience. And so we read, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, because he would be visiting them only days and weeks later, you see. And he said to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptized, I say again, means simply to immerse, to be immersed in the Spirit. Now these impatient disciples were learning patience. They were learning to wait. They were learning to wait upon the Lord. They were commanded to simply sit and wait, to tarry a while. And he doesn't say how long a while. Tarry a while in the city of Jerusalem. And so what was it they were waiting for? Well, they, they didn't really know, but what they were waiting for was this power from on high. And so when these anxious new converts asked the risen Lord as to his purpose in their waiting, asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still stuck on that, friends. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but simply to wait for the promise of the Father. You know, waiting is a far more spiritual act than we give it credit for. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for truly John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. Now, I want to make a little distinction here. You hear of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as though he's the baptizer. No, Jesus Christ is the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is the water. He is the medium of the baptism. So it is Christ who immerses us into his Spirit, and the Spirit is the medium of our baptism. And water is the symbol of that medium, you see. So we're immersed in the water. These impatient disciples were learning patience. They were learning to wait upon the Lord. They were commanded to simply sit and wait for that power to come on them. And so they were not given answers to their specific questions. Questions about the consummation of the kingdom of the earth in the last days. They said, is this the, is this the time when you will... Um, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witness of me to, in Jerusalem and in Judea. Yeah, there, um, 
their question was, will this be the time when you return um, Jerusalem to its rightful place in the earth? And he had no such thing in mind. They were simply commanded to wait. They were, however, given instructions that waiting for the infilling of the Spirit, waiting for His presence, waiting for the power with which they were promised to be endued was the first act of every true disciple. And so the wait began. Waiting, as it turns out, is a supremely spiritual act. We're really not very good at it, for the most part. It's an act that even mature disciples seem to tire of rather quickly. The psalmist calls for waiting. All throughout the psalms we read things like this, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Isaiah writes, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. References to the spiritual discipline of waiting are legion throughout the Scripture. We are a waiting people. We are a people that have to learn to be content sometimes to wait for the blessings of God. And in the waiting, they received this requisite power that was promised. And the power began with sight. And sight proceeds with knowledge. Now, this may be as good a time as any to comment on what some of you have asked me, on the conversion of Conway West recently. Now, I bring this up because it's in pop culture today, and people have asked me about it quite a bit, all right? Some of you have asked my opinion on the matter. Now, I have to tell you that though I know almost nothing about his music and his entertainment and business career, other than his amazing, immense commercial success in these things, I'm pleased to see him become so vocal about Christ and the gospel. I think that's a good thing. And you know, I'm a supreme skeptic of media claims and of pop culture in general. I don't get my information from those sectors of society. And I've always been skeptical about the church trying to capitalize on the name recognition of its most vocal converts because I I think that does a disservice to the convert. And I'm not a groupie for any celebrity in the political or entertainment or media world. My lock steps belong only to Christ, and I adamantly warn you to take this approach in your walk with God. So if you happen to be um, a Kanye fan, please, friends, don't become a Kanye disciple. But I do want to say this. I'm impressed so far with what I've seen with the young man's outspoken testimony of his personal acceptance of Christ and the gospel. And I guess he's come out with a new gospel album, which I haven't heard. And some people say, I should hear it. And he's done this in the face of vociferous opposition from heathen media sources. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on Kanye. But it is a sermon about waiting and about power and exposure and about evangelism. And I must say that I'm less skeptical about the authenticity of his conversion than I am about his reception by the church. Friends, I'm called to believe all things. Referencing Christ. A young man tells me he's come to Christ. I can't 
I can't help if he's a well-known man. So, at least, I must say, I'm less skeptical about the authenticity of his conversion than I am about the, his reception by the church. At least one megachurch preacher gave him the platform to speak to tens of thousands of professing Christians as though his spiritual gifts are the product of his personal notoriety. And that's a mistake, you see. This type of thing comes from the spirit of the age seeping into the churches. And I think it does the young convert, and in this case a famous person, a disservice. It brings with it the idea that Christian worship is just another form of entertainment. And it isn't, and it shouldn't just descend to that. And so why would such a preacher not receive an entertainer to lead them? If Mr. West showed an interest in visiting our church, I guess I'd have to be glad of it. And I would be. And I would ask that he, like any other young disciple, sit among us, sing with us, listen to an expository message from the Word of God, and he would not be automatically invited to speak. And I'm waiting for the celebrity convert who'll witness to the church in this way. I'm waiting for the celebrity convert to join a small local Bible-believing church with little exposure and an abundance of teaching rather than a great new platform to give his testimony as though his is a more interesting conversion than the small and the meek among us. And I'm glad if there are such celebrity converts who are not apprised of because of their humility and willingness to wait and be filled and to worship under the media radar. And I hope they're out there. Now we've spoken about what things disappeared after the Pentecost event, so what things remained? Well, there are two, at least. A new disciple is given new power. He's said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the promised teacher who will lead the disciple into all truth. And the operative word here, friends, is lead. So a disciple is a follower. And truth comes in stages, in stages rather, over time. Sometimes a long time, friends, sometimes a lifetime. And the second thing we see is the um, perpetual. Uh, the second thing we see that is perpetual for the new convert is that he or she shall be witnesses to me. A witness, contrary to the new political and media definition, is a person who has actually seen something or witnessed something for himself, right? A witness is not a person who surmises a thing or thinks it or presumes it. That's a, a guesser or something. A witness is a person who has seen it for himself and may testify firsthand of it. So along with the blessing of infilling came the power to witness of Christ. The infiller. The baptizer. These two things came and remained since that time and since that mighty event. So the new convert is first obedient to gather and to wait. Gathering and waiting has, has not or should not go out of style. And he's patient to learn. And he's submissive to the authority of those who were gathered and taught and filled with the Holy Spirit before he got there. Hence the disservice some churches do to new converts 
the most recent of which is Mr. West. Just as we are witnesses to the power of Christ, so must we be witnesses to the humility of Christ. Listen to what Paul said about this. Paul specifically warned against new converts teaching and having all this prominent exposure. And he wrote of church leaders that they should be not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The new convert is not the preacher. He's not the one we need to hear from except for how God worked it on him. He doesn't become our immediate teacher. And I've always warned against this kind of thing. With the, with the real immersing of the Spirit comes humility, which is a willingness to be taught and a willingness to learn from those who have been there a long time and have a spiritual gifts and a track record for teaching. Paul himself, who met Christ personally on the road to Damascus, you may remember very famously, right, from this book of Acts, he waited for many years before he set out to change the world. This is the greatest evangelist that ever lived. And from the book of Galatians, we read that he waited three years before he even went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James, the Lord's brother. And then we read from that same book, he said, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I went up by revelation. So if Paul the Pharisee, the zealot who knew more of the scriptures than many of the leaders of the day had to wait for his power and for his mission to preach. Then new converts who are truly in Christ ought to show their own humility by waiting first and acting second. Now these particular disciples have a benefit that the church has had neither before or since. They were all in one accord and they were all in one place. Though their number was comparatively small, there was great power in that union. Those two things would never be joined again even to this day. That all the people of God were in one accord. A lot of discord, right? And they're certainly not all in one place. In fact, they're not even all in one country. In fact, I don't think you could get them all into one place. So the rest of the New Testament, specifically the epistles of Paul, but not to discount James and John and Peter and Jude, would lead these diverse new converts back to this wonderful oneness of belief. They would never again be in one place, and it was not ordained for them to be so, because the gospel of Christ was to be dispersed into every corner of the earth. But we always, as Christ's true disciples, ought to seek this perfect oneness of understanding and of closeness with God. And so from verse 2 we read, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. God does do things suddenly. Miracles are of a sudden. That's what I think really catches our attention. You wouldn't call something a miracle, I don't think, that gradually happened over the... I don't think you'd call continental drift a miracle, something that happened over the, over the centuries, right? 
I'm a big believer in the suddenness of God. Knowledge comes gradually, however, but conversion comes in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I don't read anywhere of a gradual filling. It may take us many years, even a lifetime, to come to terms with the wonderful doctrines of our religion. But conversion or the birth of the crucifixion of soul comes in a moment. Friends, birth happens in a moment, right? And it comes to those who wait. Yeah, there's an incubation period, but the birth happens in a moment. And then the child is born. And so the saint is born again in a moment of time. If you're a new convert and you're expecting to worship God until you hear a teaching that doesn't comport with the level of understanding that you already have, I suggest to you you're not a convert at all. Conversion's not a period of time in which you test God for the reliability of the word. Conversion is a state in which we submit to being tested by God. Something's already happened in us. The Spirit of God within us is an agent that inserts into our inner beings a sense of eternity. Friends, the people of God are not in a rush. We're supposed to have patience. I don't like that we're supposed to have patience, but we're supposed to have patience. He knows that you do not yet know much about him the day you're converted. He knows that. You know him, but you don't really know that much about him. That's why he tells you to wait. That's why Paul went up to Arabia for 14 years. His witness confirms a willingness within you to wait for spiritual realities to align themselves with intellectual understanding. We don't get it all at once. Just like the baby is born and has to learn to speak and has to learn to walk and has to learn to do different functions that a mature person has already learned. So the young Christian has this period of learning. And you may have all your life been a committed believer in human evolution over thousands of years, friends. I understand that. But if the Holy Spirit has entered, the idea that God formed fully evolved human beings from the dust of the earth should not be intellectually repulsive to you. In fact, you ought to receive it with joy. In other words, the intellect that is visited by the Spirit of God is not in conflict with the revelation. There are two simultaneous phases of spiritual understanding. First, you receive every new revelation of the written word with commensurate joy. Every new thing you learn about Christ, you receive with joy. And secondly, your informed spirit anxiously waits for your uninformed mind to catch up. If at some point in your walk you come to a place of uncontested spiritual truth and you are adamantly resistant to it, you are No Christian at all. You haven't arrived. You haven't received the new birth. There are so many biblical examples of this very thing. One such example comes immediately to mind. From John chapter 6, we read of Jesus speaking of eating his flesh and of drinking his blood. That's kind of repulsive. 
You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he said. And he doesn't attempt to explain it, at least not right away. And I always thought, that's interesting. People are hearing this and they're repulsed by it and they're walking away. And he doesn't stand there and plead with them to come back. Because if they were committed to Christ in their spirits already, they knew to stay and just wait for it to be explained, which it was. He simply declares it though. And he declares it in the same way as when he said, let there be light. And there was light. But some of the disciples who've come this far with him are repulsed by the implication of cannibalism. And we read, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And what did he do? Do you remember? Did he stand there and, and frantically call them? No, please come back. I didn't mean to say that. No, he turned to the beloved disciple standing next to him and he says, do you want to go with them? Or are you going to stay? Or are you going to wait to hear the unraveling of this new teaching I've given you? And what did Peter say? He said, well, you're the Christ of God. Where would we go? That's what the true disciple says. When something's uncertain but you've read it from the word of god you know in your spirit because you have a new spirit you know already that it's true even though your understanding hasn't caught up with that yet and so don't be beckoned to leave be beckoned to say that you are the lord and you'll lead us into all truth where would we go where would we go From Luke we read, For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? And so he goes on to teach that many professed disciples who discover the real cost of discipleship will cut their losses and go their way. They'll only stay with Christ so long as they hear a teaching that they do not like. Now I've often said that salvation is free. But friends, discipleship very costly. It can cost you everything you have. And these first disciples, it did. And many of them, it cost them their lives. But they willingly paid it because they understood where they were going and who they belonged to. The true convert knows that God works in mysterious ways, and though he expects to be surprised by the way he works, he also expects that in time, many of those mysterious ways will be explained and be unmysterious. And he goes through the word of God with a sort of adventurous spirit, sometimes perplexed, but waiting for the spirit of God to unravel that perplexity and make reality clear to him. And so, friends, the new convert learns to wait for the power. It comes of a sudden, but patience is in his wings. the power comes in a sudden, of a sudden, but patience comes with it. Now, the word power in the Greek is the word dunamis, and it's defined as the ability to do. Power is the ability to accomplish something, but it has a more explosive connotation. By the way, the word dynamite is named after this Greek word dunamis for power. Our lexicon tells us 
that it is that which manifests God's power. You could call it God's dynamite, if you like. And so when a person is truly converted and filled with the Holy Spirit, he may do marvelous things. And he, might, and he may understand things that perplexed him earlier. But first, he, with the, he will be empowered to join with the people of God. And he'll be content to gather when they gather and to be taught when they're taught. And in each new stage of his Christian development, which we call sanctification, he will be empowered to accomplish what God has given him to do. And so, our Father, we ask for this understanding, which is great power. And we ask, if we have not yet been endued with power from on high, O Lord, that the great grace that it is, and the graceful Lord that you are, that you will descend upon us and make these things known to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.